Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, we talk to Craig Carter, who teaches up at Tyndale in Canada. We talk about his new book, Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition, Recovering the Genius of Postmodern Exegesis, which is one of my favorite books that I've read in quite a long time. We talk about the importance of looking to the church fathers for an example of how to interpret scripture. He talks about why they do that, what the logic is behind their theological method. We talk about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament and how the New Testament authors were reading their Old Testaments. We also talk about just some of the problems in modern exegesis. So, of course, he's arguing that we should care about interpreting Scripture like the Church Fathers, but also what are the downfalls in modern exegesis that we should get away from, that we should avoid, and that have uh, become problematic in the way that we read the Bible. We also talk about Christian Platonism, which is something that he is arguing for, basically saying that, hey, we need to all appreciate and understand that Platonism is uh, something that the Church Fathers used at times, even though they were critical of it in other ways, and something that we could maybe even recover today because of the way that our culture is viewing truth and other things that are important to Christianity. And then we talk about his own theological journey from being a Bardian and a pacifist and a Baptist early on in his career to having a more appreciation for um, the ancient exegesis and some of the conservative views that he has uh, politically and culturally. And then finally, we'll talk about some of his new projects he's got coming up. He's got a couple of really uh, interesting projects that are, you know, on the one hand, they sound very simple, introductions to Christian theology, introduction to classical theism. But I really enjoy the way that he talks about the passages that he's using and the logic that he's using to get there, as well as the Isaiah commentary he's working on. This episode is brought to you by our two sponsors, B&H Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to check out their latest offerings in their catalog, and the Christian Standard Bible. You can check out that Bible translation at csbible.com. And now, here's my conversation with Craig. But first, the man, the myth, the legend. No big deal. I have Craig Carter on the line. Craig, thanks so much for hopping on with me today. Hey, thank you for having me. So Craig, let's talk a little bit just to start out about your faith journey. How'd you become a Christian and how did that lead into you becoming a scholar? Well, um, <clears throat> my I was born in New Brunswick, Canada, Moncton, New Brunswick. And when I was five, my father moved to Stephenville, Newfoundland, which was, uh, he was a, a contractor for the American Air Force Base there. Um, it closed in the 60s, but it was there at that time, and it, uh, it, uh, he contracted doing furniture work for them and so on. And so um, there was a little Baptist church in Stephenville that was mostly made up of Southern Baptists who, went to, who worked at the base, and that's where I became a Christian. Um, uh, I was baptized there, and uh, so uh, even though I grew up in Canada, I actually had a Southern Baptist background, which is kind of uh, unusual. Um, the pastor was a pastor from our own denomination, the Atlantic, Atlantic Baptist Convention, but he was, uh, he was very conservative and, uh, and uh, fit in there really well. And so when we, when I moved back to New Brunswick and we, we I grew up in the Baptist denomination there, um, went to college and a Christian college, uh, then to a secular university for the last two years, did an honors BA in philosophy in, at Mount A, then I did seminary at Acadia, and um, I was a pastor for seven years in the Atlantic Baptist Convention um, in two little two churches. And then I, I went back to the University of Toronto School of Theology for a PhD under John Webster. In um, uh, He was doing BART at that time, almost exclusively. And so um, I, I, BART was my major theologian. And when time came to choose a thesis topic, I chose to do it on John Howard Yoder, who was a Mennonite ethicist who had been, uh, who had studied under Bart and written a book on Bart's ethics of war. Mm -hmm. And he had been a friend, Yoder had been a friend of my uh, church history prof in seminary, Jerry Zeman. They had both gone to Bart's um, uh, seminar back in the late 50s um, he, uh, when they were doing graduate studies in, in Europe. And so, uh, Zeman and Yoder knew each other and both had a connection to Bart, and so it all came together, and that's how I, that's what I ended up doing. So for about 10 years, um, I was uh, 
very influenced by by the theology of Bart and by the, the the ethics of Yoder, and I saw Yoder's ethics uh, in the politics of Jesus as being a Nicene kind of thing, where um, okay, if Jesus really is God come in the flesh, then his life and his uh, way of life must have uh, authority, must be uh, authoritative for discipleship, and therefore following Jesus in the way of peace is the way to do social ethics. Um, and so I never, I, I just say that to, to point out that I never doubted that I was a Nicene Christian. I never doubted the doctrine of the Trinity. I never doubted that that was fundamental to Christianity. Um, but it always bothered me a little bit that Leo Tolstoy had once said, and I can't track down the reference. If anybody knows where Tolstoy said this, I'd like to know because I went looking for it and couldn't find it. But he um, apparently said that you can have the Nicene Creed or you can have uh, the Sermon on the Mount, but you can't have both. <laughs> and um, I, But I, I always thought you could have both. So um, so that's how I got going on uh, as a scholar. I Then after my... Um, doctoral degree, I, I began to teach at Crandall University, in which it, which was then Atlantic Baptist University, now Crandall University in Moncton, New Brunswick, Canada. And I was there. Eventually, I became VP academic for five years. And then I moved to Tyndale in Toronto and did the same job there and helped them transition from a Bible college to a liberal arts college. But as of 2005, I got a sabbatical. And then after that, uh, since then, I've been teaching full time. And uh, that's when I, my, my thesis on Yoder was published and a follow-up book on Niebuhr was published. And in, in both of those books reflected basically an attempt to be Bartian and Anabaptist. And they were, they were in print by uh, the early 2000s. But when I went on sabbatical, I was going to write a book on the doctrine of God. So um, the doctrine of God, my idea was, okay, I was reading Zizulus and Gunton. Um, so you've got social Trinitarianism, God, is, this is supposedly what the Cappadocians taught, according to Zizulus, that God is three persons in an eternal relationship of love. So this love between the persons within the Godhead is the foundation for the relationship of God to the world, which is one of love. And so my idea was to say, okay, if that's the, 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 the real doctrine of God, as opposed to the classical theist definition that had been dominant in the West, well, then this is the perfect basis for a social, uh, uh, as a, a foundation for social ethics. So that was what the book was supposed to be, a doctrine of God as relational to undergird a, uh, a social ethics of peace. So um, when I started doing research, I found that I um, um, started teaching a seminar in the fourth century, uh, Fathers, uh, the Pro-Nicene, movement between the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople. And I started using a book by Lewis Ayers called Nicaea and Its Legacy. Mm -hmm. um, and basically through reading that book and other people like Anatolios and John Baer and Robert Wilkin and Francis Young, uh, and by reading the fathers themselves, especially Augustine and uh, Athanasius and some of the Cappadocians, um, I became convinced that... Um, that historically speaking, Gunton and Zizulus were wrong about the Cappadocians, that there was a single pro-Nicene theology that is common to Athanasius, the Cappadocians, and Augustine, which uh, was basically reflects what we would call, well, which was summarized by Thomas Aquinas, and what we would call classical theism. So in the four, first 43 articles of the Summa Theologica, Thomas summarizes the tradition to that point, and the tradition to that point is a Trinitarian classical theism. Well, that meant that my whole book project was out the window, <laughs> and um, I began to, uh, it took me a long time. I'm still working, I'm now just finishing that book, um, on, and, and the book has morphed into a, a, um, a, a biblical defense of classical theism, mm. um, but, um, but that's, that was my journey, and after that, I started uh, working on the book, and, and partway through, I'll just finish this story so it can be a coherent narrative, and then you can ask questions <laughs> okay. about specifics, but... Um, after once I got going on the on the Doctrine of God book, and and I went through this change of realizing that that social trinitarianism is not what the Cappadocians taught, that relational theism was not Nicene Christianity. Um, um, one of the things that that became uh, a really big point of argument was this. So let's say that all these relational views of God are not Nicene. 
Okay, well, uh, the good book came out by Stephen Holmes a few years ago called The Quest for the Trinity, mm -hmm. and he shows that very clearly. Historically speaking, um, Moltmann's dynamic panentheism or the open theism of Clark Pinnock, these things are not consistent with the tradition. They're not consistent with the Nicene tradition. Um, and, and so that was going to be my point. But then I thought, wait a second. The people who hold these views are just going to say, well, that's because the Nicene tradition isn't biblical and we're more biblical. Right. Because a, 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 a really odd thing has happened in the 20th century. For 1,500 years, it was obvious to everybody in the church that you could say that God was uh, merciful and loving and wrathful and that he acted in history to save and judge, and that he was immutable and impassable. Mm -hmm. and you look at the Westminster Confession of Faith Statement on God, all these attributes are mixed up together. They're all justified from Scripture. There's no apparent tension belt between them. Um, but suddenly, in the 19th and 20th century, it seems obvious to everybody that if you believe that God is relational, that God loves and speaks and acts and, and so on, then obviously you can't believe he's immutable. Um, so what was obviously compatible for the earlier tradition is now seen as obviously incompatible. What this means is that the problem is hermeneutics. Mm -hmm. and, and so um, I, I, I had to, I, 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 I was taking seriously what Andrew Louth would say, for example, he would say, how can you accept the results of Nicene exegesis if you don't accept their methods? And so he's arguing for, for allegorical interpretation mm -hmm. and for um, a spiritual sense and the senses plenoir and so on. Well, okay, that became such a big issue that I had to write Interpreting Scripture uh, to address that issue. It became a separate book. And so um, basically I'm defending classical methods of exegesis because without, the, without doing so, it's hard to argue that the Nicenes were right about their doctrine of God. Um, not just about their doctrine of the Trinity, but about their their classical theism that underlies the doctrine of the, uh, doctrine of the Trinity, the immutability, impassibility, simplicity, eternity, aseity, etc. of God. So that's that's a that's my journey. That's that's where it's taken me up to this point. Yeah, that is quite the journey <laughs> from uh, from Bardian. Uh, stuff on Niebuhr to doing uh, things on pre-modern exegesis. So, what are some of the what are some of the things that you have uh, held on to from those early days of theology that you still say I still believe this and this is still important to me? And then, what are the things that you have shifted away from and why? Well, I I have held on to very strongly inerrancy, inspiration, authority of Scripture, um, and to the Nicene doctrine of the Trinity and Chalcedonian Christology and uh, to a basically Calvinist understanding of soteriology. Um, uh, I would call myself a Reformed Catholic. I would, I would think of myself as somebody who, uh, through the post-Reformation scholastics and the, um, and the Puritans, would have direct roots running back to, to, Catholic, to Catholic Christianity. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that Catholic Christianity has to be Reformed, so the Reformation was necessary. Um, and but I but that for all that that doesn't mean that um, that that I'm part of a new cult started in the 17th century as a Baptist. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm my roots are in in Catholic Christianity, going Amen. all the way back to the Church Fathers and the Apostles. So those are the things that haven't really changed for me. What has changed is that I would no longer call myself a pacifist in any sense. Um, I also have a different view of Christendom. Um, I'm, I'm very much uh, Augustinian in terms of my understanding of history and, and relationship of church and culture. Um, and I've become much more politically conservative. Uh, I have a whole shelf of books uh, on liberation theology. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, when I was in seminary, sort of a little story that tells you everything you need to know about what's wrong with the world today. Um, uh, in my seminary program, I had to take 12 seminars. Um, these are courses, basically, over a two-year period in, before you could start comprehensives. And the only rule about, so obviously, if you were in systematic or Old Testament or New Testament, there was a different set of requirements for each one. But the one rule that applied to all graduate students was that every student had to take at least one course in 
liberation theology of one kind or another. Um, but there was no comparable requirement that you had to take a course in patristics. Mm. They, they didn't care if you knew anything about the early church, but you had to know something about liberation theology. And that that just sort of summarizes what's wrong with the church <laughs> in the world. Yeah, and there's probably there's a lot of conservative places that do the opposite that are fine letting you interact with those kind of things they agree with, but don't want you to interact with liberation theology on the other side. Well, but of all things to pick, liberation theology <laughs> seems to be as about far down the list of most important things. I mean, if you want to talk about, I mean, we should be, there are a lot of things that theologians need to know that are far more important than that. Like, for example, um, we need to know a lot more about the history of philosophy than we do. And so to, to let theologians out on the world without ever having taken a course in Plato or Aristotle mm -hmm. or Kant or Hegel uh, seems kind of crazy. Yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, so give a little bit of an intro. Um, you did a little bit during uh, there at the beginning, but give a little bit of a, a summary and a thesis of interpreting scripture with the great tradition, your new book. This is a book that has definitely garnered a lot of attention and a lot of praise. And, um, you know, it, it's it's emblematic of sort of this uh, rise or revival and in interest in these kind of things in a lot of evangelical circles. So give a little bit of a thesis about uh, why you wrote it and what you were trying to do in that book and how you think it particularly serves the church in light of some of the other books that are similar to it. Well, um, the book the book starts with a story about me um, preaching in my first Good Friday service as a young pastor in my 20s. And uh, I was going to preach on Isaiah 53. And um, I knew that Isaiah 53 was uh, a, was fulfilled in Christ. Um, but um, in seminary, if I thought back on, on how I'd been trained to do exegesis, um, you know, the seminary taught me Greek and Hebrew and exegetical method, historical critical method, so that I could uncover the original meaning of the original author in the original situation to the original audience. And the assumption was that that was the meaning of the text. Um, the meaning of the text is what the original author meant to say to the original audience in the original situation. And since that was about 2,700 years ago or 2,500 years ago, depending on your view of uh, dating Isaiah, um, that's um, whatever that was about, it was very difficult to make that long journey from that point to, to Jesus to today. And um, it was very difficult to see how it could be about Jesus. I mean, how, how Isaiah of Jerusalem or, or Deutero Isaiah could be talking about um, something that was going to happen centuries later to someone that they didn't understand clearly. Um, it just didn't, it was very difficult. To, to, I, I understood that, that people said, okay, we have to apply the scripture. But I was never, I was never comfortable with that because it sounds like, you know, once you do the historical thing, then you can do anything you want with the text. You know, it, like application is up to the, to the uh, preacher. Um, and this is why in seminary, when, when the biblical studies people got finished with the exegesis, um, it, it, I had the feeling that they sort of then said, if, if we students said, well, how do we apply this text? How do we preach it today? They would say, go, go ask the homiletics professor, and they would just piously avert their eyes, and they knew that what was coming was, was, didn't fit within their paradigm, but they just kind of uh, sighed and let you go off and do it. Um, because if, if the only control on the meaning of the text, if the only thing that prevents the text from be meaning anything at all is the original author's meaning, human author's meaning, um, well, then once you leave that behind and you go off into the homiletical application process, uh, that process is essentially uncontrolled. Well, this is a very big problem because how do you preach the Bible authoritatively when the application of the text is strictly in the hands of the, of the interpreter? And I think the reason why we don't feel this tension more acutely and more often is because most of the time modern preachers preach from the New Testament. And the gap between what the original author, like Paul, meant to say to the Romans, let's say, in Romans 2, the gap between what Paul meant to say to them in the first century and what Paul would say if he was addressing us today is very small. You know, he's still going to try to convince us that all Jews and Gentiles have sinned and that we all need to have faith in Christ and we all need to give up trusting in our own works. I mean, 
the, the gap isn't that great. He, he, what he said to them, he says to us, so we don't feel the, the, um, we don't feel the, the problem of, of subjectivity when we're preaching a text like that. Mm-hmm. But when you get back into the Old Testament, uh, the problem becomes acute. Now, so the way that the, the, way the con- contemporary church solves that problem is just, just don't preach the Old Testament or, or just preach it very selectively. You've got a few verses, a few chapters here and there that you can preach, but you don't, you know, you basically just preach mostly the New Testament. That's, that's the practical means of coping that most pastors have who are seminary educated. Um, and, and I don't think that's good enough because here's why. Paul didn't have a New Testament to preach from. And the people who were preaching the gospel in the first century didn't have a New Testament yet. Right. And they preached the gospel from the Old Testament. And the question is, were they legitimate? And was that legitimate? I mean, was it right for them to say, because if you really study the, Old, the New Testament, the whole New Testament can be seen, uh, all of Paul's the way the structure of Paul's theology and the theology of, say, John and Matthew and Luke, it's all basically an interpretation of Isaiah and the Psalms, I would say, and and their interpretations of the Torah. But essentially, the New Testament apostles are saying, this is what the Old Testament means. This is what Jesus Christ has done. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But in order for that argument to work, They've got to be not misinterpreting the Old Testament, mm-hmm. and 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 that's the foundation of Christianity. the The earliest theological debate, the the, the church forming debate, was in the first and second century between the, the 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 rabbis like Paul, who believed that Jesus did fulfill the Old Testament, versus the uh, the rabbinic non messianic rabbis who said no, he doesn't inter- interpret the he doesn't fulfill the Old Testament. So they were essentially. D- they were disagreeing about what the Old Testament means. And so, um, you know, if, if the apostles aren't right about what the Old Testament means, how can they be right about what Jesus means? And how can Christianity be true? Um, so that's, that's, the, that's what's at stake here. So how do we understand the Old Testament, um, the meaning of the Old Testament? Is there a way that we can understand? The, uh, what I'm aiming for in this book is to try and understand the Old Testament more in the way that the apostles did. Mm-hmm. And then on, your, on the subtitle of the book you wrote, it, it's called uh, Recovering the Genius of Premodern Exegesis. So flesh that out a little bit more about how this project that you're doing, how, how is the premodern exegesis a genius uh, method and a genius idea, and how do you think that applies? Uh, how does it apply to what you're doing and, and how we can do it now? Well... I think that the essence of the pre-modern uh, view of exegesis is that their focus is on divine authorial intent and not just human authorial intent. Um, now, w- whenever you start talking about divine authorial intent in the modern world, um, people get nervous because uh, they think that you're going to detach divine authorial intent from human authorial intent. And then they think it's uncontrolled speculation. You're reading in anything you want. So, uh, so what I try to do in this book is to show that the genius of pre-modern exegesis was that they did, they refused to make a choice between human authorial intent and divine authorial intent. Um, So, so what they did was to say, basically the meaning of inspiration is that God inspires the divine, the, the human authors of scripture in such a way that the resulting text uh, has a a human authorial intention that you can discern by reading it and placing it in context and understanding it, doing exegesis, but that the meaning of the text is not exhausted by the conscious human intention of the author. And, And when I say not exhausted by, what I mean specifically is that the divine authorial intent can go beyond the human authorial intent, but it can never contradict the human authorial intent. So um, I base this on, um, oddly enough, a biblical text. Um, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating 
when he predicted the sufferings of the Christ and the subsequent glories. So what, what this text is saying is that Peter is envisioning the prophets as writing their prophetic words, but not fully understanding everything that God was saying through those prophetic words. Mm-hmm. Now, when you think about it, um, the difference between the Bible and other books is that the Bible is inspired. And one of the things that it means for a book to be inspired is that it functions as the sacred scriptures of a community of faith. Well, if the Bible is going to speak to generation after generation, century after century, if the Bible is going to be able to speak to people in Abraham's day and Moses' day and our day, how, how is that possible? Um, how, can, how can conscious human intention in the 7th century B.C. Um, say everything that needs to, to be said to the people of the 1st century A.D.? Well, I, I think that, that Peter explains how that is, because God inspires the prophets to, to say something, and what they say, it makes sense to them, and it's meaningful to the people in their in their cultural situation in that historical period. But the meaning of the text, as inspired by God, is not exhausted by the meaning that is perceived in that situation. And so there's more meaning in the text that can become evident later as the Spirit works through the church to uh, help people to appreciate the new meaning, which sometimes becomes apparent because of the successive mighty acts of God in history. Mm-hmm. So as God works in Christ and brings, brings brings about the incarnation, death and resurrection and ascension of Christ, all of a sudden the Paul can see more in Isaiah than Isaiah even understood Isaiah to mean. So the genius is though that you can go wrong in two ways. You can re, you can either be reductionistic or you can be subjective. So you can either and I think this is the modern mistake You can reduce the meaning of the text. So the meaning of the text is nothing but what the human author originally intended consciously. That's the modern mistake. That reduces the text, and it it imprisons the text in the past, essentially. But the the other way you can go wrong is to say, well, the Bible is a magic book that we can just uh, read it in any way we want. Mm -hmm. Basically, we read a response through. We can read anything we want into it. We can interpret it any way. In fact, we can interpret it, for example in ways that actually go against what the original author meant to say, um, if, if, if that seems right to us. And you see this in liberal interpretation. So, for example, Stephen Fowle is the example I give in the book. So he says that, in, uh, he says that homosexuals should be accepted into the church today. Um, practicing homosexuals should be a, a accepted uh, equally in the church because, and his, his basis is, well, look at what happened in, in Acts 15. The, the, the Jewish church accepted the Gentiles into the church as, um, as uh, full members of the church because of faith in Christ without accepting circumcision and taking on all the responsibilities of the Mosaic law. So if, uh, if the church could do that then, if the church was inclusive then, why can't the church be inclusive today? So what we have there is, a, is, a, is an example of, of exegesis that, that purports to use a text to justify an action in the present. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the text itself, uh, the original human intention of the, of the text was, I mean, they forbade, they specifically forbade immorality. Yes, the Gentiles can come into the church, but they've got to give up their immoral practices, their, their sexual immorality. Mm-hmm. And, and so what we're saying is now the Gentiles can come in and, and keep practicing sexual immorality. So there's no way that you have to interpret the text against its own original meaning in order to read that meaning in today. So these are the two ways you can go wrong. You either reduce the text, you reduce it to nothing but original author's conscious intention, or, or you can, um, or you can make the text malleable so that you can read anything into it. The genius of pre-modern exegesis, as I see it, was holding these two things together in such a way that the meaning could expand, but without contradicting the previous meaning. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's talk about maybe an example with the Trinity. So, you know, David Diego talks a lot about um, the concept judgment paradigm that basically Paul can say in Philippians 2 that Jesus is equal to God. He can say things like 1 Corinthians 8, 6, there's you know, one God and one Lord, Jesus Christ, and sort of has these, these early ideas of what Trinitarianism becomes. And then in Nicaea, they use phrases like, or words like homoousios 
to say the same thing, basically, that Paul is saying in different or more developed terminology. So how would you talk about that balance between Paul was not a Nicene Trinitarian in the, in the formal sense, and yet he did understand that Jesus was divine and was even teaching it, but he wasn't saying the same things, nor did he understand things quite the way that maybe Athanasius would have. How would you, how would you discuss that relationship between the two uh, as far as human author and divine author? <clears throat> well, um, actually, the doctrine of the Trinity, <clears throat> per se, is a, um, a slightly different problem. Um, well, <clears throat> essentially, how a youth pastor called me recently and said, um, I'm, I'm having trouble with the doctrine of the Trinity because um, I keep getting this challenge, show me where it says that in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And, and so I said, well... You remember that in the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, theology is defined as um, the teaching of Scripture and that which may be deduced from the teaching of Scripture by good and necessary consequence. So you have two stages there. You have exegesis, which tells you certain things, and then you have um, um, a, a logical Um, deduction from these exegetical statements that leads you to something else. Well, I see the the process of of the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, You you, you do exegesis and you discover that um, Jesus is regarded in Scripture as divine. Okay, and then you also find that the New Testament has no interest in denying the central affirmation of the Old Testament in the Shema, that God is one. So, um, so you now have God is one and Jesus is divine and Jesus is somehow distinguishable from the father and, and yet, and yet God is one. So how do you, how do you express that in in a, in a coherent logical way? And that's what I see the fourth century pro-Nicene theologians wrestling with. Um, Because remember at the beginning of the fourth century, everybody was accepting the exegetical teaching that, okay, the new Testament talks about, Father, Son, and Spirit in a triune way. It talks about all of them as divine, um, and uh, and 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 that doesn't. And the issue of the relationship of the New Testament, the Old Testament, is a separate issue, and we can talk about that as well. But but as far as as uh, what was going on in the fourth century, how I understand it is that that the the exegetical results indicated certain things that you have to say in order to be biblical um, that God is one. Also, that Father, Son, and Spirit are divine. So the problem in the fourth century was how to say both together in a way that you had a paradox but not a contradiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you had a contradiction, you know, Arius' solution was a failure because he denied one, one set of exegetical results. He denied the full deity of Christ. Um, so we can't go that way. Um, but but others, others were, were, were problematic because they, they denied the, the oneness of God. So you had to have both uh, both things together, and that's what homoousios does. So, so the church basically said homoousios and hypostasis were the two Greek words that were synonyms prior to this point, but they decided to de-synonymize. That's Colin Gunton's word, phrase, very good word. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they decided to say, look, let us regard the usia of God as that which there is one of, and the hypostasis of God as that which there are three of. Uh, so the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is aricha hypostasis, and God is one usia. Now we're saying that usia and hypostasis are not the same thing, but if you ask us to specify exactly how they differ, we can't because it's a mystery. Mm-hmm. All we're saying is that that God is one in being and three in persons, and that is a paradox, not a contradiction. It's something that is too profound for our finite minds to grasp, but it is not a logical contradiction. And so we're able to affirm both the oneness and the threeness of God simultaneously. So I, that's what I think was going on in the fourth century. Yeah, and it does seem like um, a lot of modern scholarship, you know, with historical critical method and, and other methods like that, there is that emphasis. Kind of what you were saying at the at the beginning, where I was going with that question was, you know, we talk about Paul as a human author, and they'll say, well, yeah, maybe Paul, at some sense, thought that Jesus was divine, and and may have indicated that in certain ways, but. You know, he wasn't intending to teach the Trinity, and so if the Bible's not intending to teach the Trinity, then we need to be careful of, you know, how much philosophy we put into it or whatever. And so, um, and I was just thinking about that as as far as over overemphasizing the human author to the point to where you can't make 
the right kind of divine deductions that, that God is clearly teaching himself to be triune, even though it's not said there specifically. Right. And so I would, I would agree with you on that. And I would say that the doctrine of the Nicene doctrine of the Trinity therefore is biblical in the most profound sense that, that what, what the Nicene creed teaches is not added to scripture in any way, but it is drawing out that which is there in scripture. And, and it's very important that we say that because we don't want to, uh, I mean, the Westminster Confession is very, very specific and very rigid and very tight on this point. It's deduction, okay? It's not, It's not. oh, there's some kind of vague relationship or you could associate this idea with that idea. It's deduction. And it is, um, it is, uh, it is something that is inevitably comes out of the scripture. Mm-hmm. So I would say that the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity inevitably arises out of what Paul said. And so it becomes a niggly little point as to, well, how consciously and fully did Paul understand the implication of what he was saying? And I'm saying that's not even the most important question. The most important question is, is the meaning of the text properly described by this theological statement? Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Um, It kind of reminds me, too, of Kevin Rowe's thing about biblical pressures, that the biblical text is pressuring you to make those type of deductions. And the part of the problem that I have with language like that is that we we need to be more precise because, strictly speaking, the biblical text doesn't do anything. Biblical text is a is a is a it's words on a page. It's a it's a book. So we need to talk about the about God, the Holy Spirit, speaking to us. And so, hmm. uh, at the risk of sounding like a Pentecostal, um, I have to say that what I understand the meaning of the text to be as. The text means what God is saying to me through the text, what God is saying to us through the text. I really think that we need to use that language because otherwise, um, you know, you've got what Paul was thinking just the moment before he wrote it down. You've got what it says in its written form, and then you've got what the Spirit is saying to us through it today. And they're all closely interrelated, but they're distinguishable. And, And really, the authority comes from God. The authority doesn't come from Paul. It doesn't come from a book. We're not like uh, we're not Quran follow. We're not like the people who follow the Quran. Mm-hmm. And and for them, the Quran is almost div- divinized. Uh, so it's not the book that's that's divine. It's the the original author who, through providence and, and miracle, inspired the book in the first place, and who continues to illuminate its meaning um, by by. Um, by working in the lives of, of Christians today. And that's something else that is part of the genius of pre-modern exegesis. They thought that exegesis of scripture, interpreting scripture was a spiritual discipline that, that leads to greater sanctification. Um, and, and so they would not separate the interpretation of scripture from the spiritual life, from confession, repentance, um, from believing God, trusting God, from faith, from, from obedience, um, they see all these things as wrapped up in a package, whereas today, uh, modern historical critical scholarship wants to separate them and turn the interpretation of the Bible into a strictly intellectual exercise that can be undertaken by atheists and Muslims and Jews and Catholics and Protestants and evangelicals and anybody at all, as long as they follow the historical critical method, anybody can interpret scripture equally well, and it doesn't really matter whether they're personally pious, doesn't matter whether they're believers, mm-hmm. none, of, none of that matters. Their confession doesn't matter. All that matters is that they follow this intellectual procedure. Well, the fathers would, would think that was utterly and baffling and, and completely crazy. They just wouldn't see how that could be possible at all. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about one of the critiques or one of the, I guess, the feedback on your book has been this idea of Christian Platonism. So in, in the circles that I'm in and the friends of mine who are reading it, there have been primarily people saying, yes, Platonism is is a good way to describe sort of some of the metaphysical structures that the early church took on when it came to these kind of things. Others would say, well, I don't want to, I don't think we should be too quick to insert these pagan philosophies, for lack of a better word, into our Christian exegesis or assume that the early church was that open to it. So, so what is Christian Platonism or what is Platonism first so that people understand that? And then how are you describing that and applying that? And how do you think it's useful for, for what you're doing? Okay, well, Christian Platonism um, is, uh, first of all, I think the problem, I think the root problem here, and and I don't mean to sound uh, um, uh, condescending in any way, it's not, but really seriously, I mean, people, we need to have a talk. And the talk is we need to know Greek philosophy. 
Um, and when I say know it, I mean understand what the issues were and what the disagreements were and what the uh, what the problems were. Uh, because we're trying to read Augustine and 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 Gregory of Nyssa and 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 we're trying to understand what they're saying, but we don't know who they're talking to and what the issues are and why they use certain terms and avoid certain terms and and get all exercised about arguing against something. These are shadows to us. We don't understand what's going on, and so we really need to learn more Greek philosophy. I I think a a course in from Thales to uh, the Neoplatonists would be a basic foundational course in every seminary program. We, we just need to know this stuff. Um, otherwise, we just can't understand what the fathers are doing. And, and, you know, the same people who say, well, I'm nervous about Christian Platonism because after all, you know, that's bringing Greek philosophy into the Bible. These, these people will turn around five minutes later and, and, and tell us why we have to, or, or act as if we have to assume that Kantian philosophy is right and that we can't know things in themselves. And therefore, we have to have some kind of a uh, nuanced realism, if any realism at all. And, 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 they're, and, and why, or, or, they're, or they're assuming that history somehow reveals God in a Hegelian way. So, so it's okay to take Kant and Hegel on board, but, it, but we've got to be very worried about Aristotle and Plato. Mm-hmm. That's just not consistent. Um, we're just we're, we're guilty of presentism, um, chronological snobbery. We just assume that the metaphysical assumptions being made around us must be right because they're 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 the fruit of all this progress for two thousand years, and and obviously we're the most advanced civilization. And besides, we have science, we have iPhones, so therefore, obviously, our metaphysical presuppositions must be right. And the ones back in the first century are very dodgy and and worrisome. So anyway, the end of my rant, but, but that's, uh, the, the, it's just, a, it, there's a real educational problem here. And if we refuse to understand the context in which the fathers were writing, we're not going to understand how they are, are really, what the implications of what they say are for our day. Um, so Christian Platonism is, is basically, you know, it, I, I thought of coming up with a, a cheeky little list of, you might be a Christian Platonist without knowing it, if. So if you believe, for example, in heaven, if you believe that Jesus' body is in heaven, well, you might be a Christian Platonist. Uh, because Platonists believe that the material cosmos is not the totality of reality. They believe that there's a spiritual realm beyond the, the, the totality of reality. And I, I thought of saying, you might be a Christian Platonist if you believe in absolute truth. Uh, you can't be uh, a postmodern uh, or a late modern thinker and believe in absolute truth. Uh, but Platonists are all uh, anti-relativists and anti-skeptics. So uh, Platonism does believe in absolute truth and has a metaphysical theory um, on which the idea of absolute truth is based. It's the idea that there's a, such a thing as metaphysical realism, um, that there are universals, uh, and that because these universals exist, uh, some things are true and some things are false. And and so there's a standard of, of what is real. Um, you might be a Christian Platonist if you um, if you believe that that the material world is um, is in some sense dependent on something beyond the material world, but that it can't be dependent on itself. It can't be um, uh, um, the, the world can't have its own self-existence and can't move itself and can't, uh, that, that it, it, you know, if, if you don't believe those things, and lots of, you know, evangelical Christians don't believe those things, well, Platonists don't believe that either. So you might be, you might, I think a lot of evangelical conservative Protestant, conservative Catholic too, Christians, are Christian Platonists without realizing it. And I think I'm trying to uh, to push the idea of, because essentially my, my, my motivation in talking about Christian Platonism as opposed to the theological metaphysics of Nicaea is that I want to uh, challenge modern metaphysics. I want to say that what has developed in the West from the 14th century to the, to the 20th century um, is a, a system of metaphysics that is false. And that has implications for everything else from sexual morality to the stability of our culture to natural law foundations of our legal system to well you name it it's got 
so many implications for everything. And, and, and in order to mount some kind of a challenge to modern metaphysics, you've got to have an alternative. And basically, I believe that the metaphysics that modernity rejected is superior to the metaphysics that modernity accepted. So the irony is that the very metaphysical views that the fathers consciously considered and rejected in favor of Christian Platonism. So they rejected, for example, atomism. They rejected Epicureanism. They rejected hedonism. Well, these views that they that they considered and rejected in favor of Platonism have now become dominant in our culture. Mm. And we are accepting many of these views that the fathers rejected. Um, but we're but the only view we seem to be worried about is Platonism. And and I think I think the answer to that is a more sophisticated, informed, knowledgeable understanding of Platonism and how various it is and what the various uh, kinds are, and to understand what it was about Platonism that the fathers rejected and corrected. Um, so so I think I think the I think I would just plead with people to take the modifier Christian seriously. Because um, w w the fathers are not just Platonists, they're Christian Platonists, which means that certain things in Platonism that um, are very incompatible with the Bible, the fathers reject it. Uh, so the, the, the biggest metaphysical uh, issue, the biggest correction, I think, uh, that the fathers made was creation ex nihilo. Um, the idea that God created out of nothing. This is foundational to their concept of the relationship of God in the world. And um, a lot of people, when they, when they say Platonism, if they have any, any image in their mind of what, that, of what that means, it's probably they're thinking Neoplatonism. They're thinking um, a great chain of being, a continuity of being. The one emanates being out from itself, and the whole of reality is all part of this continuous being. And the further out from the one you go, the more it's mixed with matter. Right. And, and that's the metaphysical worldview of, and they think of that as Platonism. Well, the fathers rejected that. The fathers said, no, no, no. The, the, there's no continuity of being between God and the world. Uh, God created the world out of nothing at a point in time. It's completely creaturely and contingent. There's an infinite qualitative distinction, like Kierkegaard said, between God and, and, and the being of the world. So the fathers correct Platonism at that point. And I think probably that's one of the things, one of the areas where uh, if people were to make the distinction between Christian Platonism versus Neoplatonism, they wouldn't have nearly as much uh, of an issue with my using the term. Yeah, and, and so what you're saying is, it's not that the Bible, you know, one of the feedback is, well, why do you need Platonism if the Bible teaches about heaven and absolute truth? We don't need these other things. We've got scripture, we've got the word telling us that. And what you're saying is, it's not that the Bible doesn't teach those things, it's that the early church in particular was using the, were using um, the metaphysical terms and some of the logic of Platonism to help describe what they were already seeing in scripture. Would that be a way to say it? Uh, yes, that's true. And also, I would say, though, that the that the problem is that um, that if you want to believe in absolute truth in heaven, you need a metaphysical system that that uh, allows for those things to be. But what we're what we're trying to do, I believe, in much of Christian theology today is we're trying to accommodate ourselves to a modern metaphysical system that does not allow for those things. Mm. So we are living in a contradictory situation where on the one hand, we're trying to uphold a modern post-Kantian metaphysics, but on the other hand, we're trying to affirm absolute truth. And, and we think that somehow we can reach an accommodation and that we can somehow bring these two things together and say both. And I'm saying, no, we can't. And, and we're, we're, we're just, we're, we need more clarity of thought. We need to understand what it is we need to accept and what it is we need to reject about the modern world. And as long as we're engaged in this accommodation program, we, we can't get that kind of clarity. What we need to do is to understand that the Bible generates its own metaphysics. And uh, you don't have to call it Christian Platonism. You can call it whatever you want. But, but it has to be a coherent way of understanding reality that has to be set over against modernity, and I don't think you can really bring those two things together. <coughs> um, so, how would you how would you um, tell a seminary student or a pastor who hasn't really considered 
a lot of things we're talking about, not just Christian Platonism and, and that idea, but even just the pre-modern exegesis and the in- interpretive method that you're trying to lay out. Who would be some some ancient and modern sort of exemplars of the type of thing that you're doing that you would say, hey, if you want to get kind of fully immersed in this and really learn how to do this yourself, who would be some ancient and modern authors that you would say, you need to go read this, this book, uh, model this person? Well, I would say the four most important people to read would be Athanasius, Augustine, um, Calvin, and Owen. Um, those Athanasius is surprisingly easy to understand. Mm-hmm. He is uh, he is somebody that I think the average pastor can pick up and read Athanasius and get a lot out of it. And it 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 really is shocking how 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 relevant and how biblical you will find it to be. And Augustine is the same. I think you know. Um, please don't read a book about Augustine. Read read Confessions of the City of God, and you you will. You'll find that that especially city of God, you will. I think the average reader, because it's a biblical theology, you know, it's first the first half is apologetic, second half is biblical theology. Evangelicals should be able to eat that up, mm-hmm, right? Uh, and uh, and I think the um, Calvin is the exegete par excellence. To the, he's the hero of the tradi- of my book in the sense that the tradition kind of comes to its climax in him. Um, the, the modern. Many modern exegetes will say, well, Calvin was kind of a transitional figure. He was kind of like uh, a foreshadow, a precursor of uh, the modern historical critical approach. Uh, I don't think so. I think Calvin is just an outstanding example of pre-modern exegesis. Mm-hmm. So um, his his commentaries are so widely used today that, I mean, that's amazing. 500 years later, his commentaries are so widely used. That's just shocking. And and he's still better than most other commentators. So. Right. <laughs> Uh, that's that's a that's that's huge, and I think John Owen because um, although his prose can be turgid, um, I think that uh, he has a lot a lot to teach those who will be patient enough to to wade through. Um, these uh, these are people, and 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 basically, I I think you should be. I would encourage pastors who are preaching um, to be very careful about using modern commentaries. The way I would. I would suggest not to not use modern commentaries at all, but I would say when you go to preach on a book, you need to have the um, ancient Christian commentary series uh, as your starting point from Interarchy Press. So you need, you need to have that. You need to have Calvin. And then you need to find something else from the tradition from pre-1800. So you want to have something by Luther or something by Aquinas or something by one of the Puritans, and then use one or two modern historical critical preferably ones focused on the linguistic issues um, because that's this part of modern exegesis. Um, and, and, and so that that would be a balanced approach to preaching on a biblical book. So if you're going to preach on, on say um, Jeremiah or Psalms or I, or something like that, if you use the ancient Christian commentary and Calvin and something else that's pre-modern plus one or two modern, modern commentaries, that's five. That's a manageable number for somebody preaching through a book. Um, but that's the approach that I would take is just, just be, be, be careful about getting locked into a, a set of modern assumptions that are never stated, but taken for granted mm. that you can find yourself going along with if you're not reading the pre-modern stuff. And you're working on a, a commentary on Isaiah. So how are you trying to, are you trying to make the best of both worlds in your Isaiah commentary or what's the approach that you're taking there? Um, I, the best of both worlds in the sense that um, it, I, I want to use, like I, I, I appreciate certain things about modern, modern exegesis. Um, I mean, we we're blessed to have the work we have in, in Hebrew and, and the history philology. I mean, that's, you know, I will use modern commentaries a lot to help me understand individual Hebrew words mm-hmm. and phrases, but I, I'm not interested in the modern uh, methodology, modern hermeneutical assumptions at all. I, it'll, I'm aiming to, to make it a much more pre-critical commentary. So I want to focus on the question, what does Isaiah mean theologically? And I also want to draw attention to how Isaiah forms the substructure of New Testament theology. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's very important in, in discussing what it means. 
Um, I, I was looking at a commentary the other day, and this commentary discussed Isaiah 53 and never once mentioned anywhere, as far as I can see, the entire commentary uh, never once mentioned the um, the New Testament. And, uh, and, and that's interesting because it called itself a literary and theological commentary. <laughs> so it didn't even purport to be an exegetical or philologically oriented commentary. It purported to be literary and theological, but it never mentioned the New Testament. So... Um, that, that's a problem as far as I'm concerned. I think we, we have, you know, you, you need to mention the New Testament, even if you're an Orthodox Jew and you're intending to disprove that the New Testament writers got it right, you still have to mention it um, in terms of the reception of the, of the meaning of the text. So, see, so yeah, I, I, I want to, I, I believe Isaiah is a unity. I believe that, um, uh, that there is a, uh, a coherent theological message that comes through. And I think that primarily, what it's about is that it's about God. And um, I think that, uh, I, I just think that a lot of the commentaries I read, I've got a whole shelf full here, they're just, um, they just get at maybe 2% of the meaning of the book. They, they really don't explore its riches at all. And that's a shame because it's a wonderful book. And when is that going to be, when does that do out? Oh, it's, it'll be a while. That's uh, that's going to be um, it's going to be three volumes, and the first volume is scheduled for uh, to be finished in twenty twenty two. Oh wow! Do you think you'll you think you'll make your deadlines? <laughs> yeah, I'll, that that's volume one, I think. But right now, I've I've got two other projects. I'm on sabbatical, and I'm hoping to start the commentary. Well, I've been studying Isaiah since twenty sixteen, but I'm hoping to start actually doing the commentary by uh, September. But I've got two other things to get finished before then. Uh, and what are the other two things you're working on? Well, this book on the doctrine of God, um, um, the uh, the idea of um, uh, I'm actually working. This book is is arguing that the um, uh, Trinitarian classical theism of the great tradition is rooted in Scripture, and my my specifically in Isaiah 40 to 48. So I'm uh, the book, the heart of the book is a discussion of Isaiah 40 to 48, which presents a doctrine of God as transcendent creator, sovereign Lord of history, and the one who alone is to be worshipped. Mm-hmm. And and that that section of Isaiah is, a, is an argument to the exiles, don't give up hope. Why shouldn't you give up hope? Because, of, because essentially the argument is because God is who God is, therefore you can hope in him. And so it's the whole point that Isaiah is making in these chapters is to describe the nature of God. So it's a perfect place to uh, just to see, you know, in an extended way, what does what does a major leading biblical writer understand God to be? How does he understand God? And I'm arguing that when you when you um, when you see the, the particularly the doctrine of transcendence that comes out there. Uh, building on Exodus and Genesis, it seems to me that what you've got there is the biblical basis of classical theism. I'm go, I'm, then I'm going to talk about the fourth century and show that um, at a very deep level, in terms of the logic of how God relates to the world, that the fourth century classical theist tradition is the same, saying the same thing about God that Isaiah is saying about God. So I want to move beyond proof texting, you know, well, this verse, you know, we have this verse in Malachi that says God never changes. So therefore classical theism is true. <laughs> well, okay, that's, that's good. But um, I want to go much deeper than that and argue that the view of God that's, that's in the scripture is the same view of God that is in the great tradition. So that's the, po- the point of the book. And you said you had another one, you had two projects. Yeah. The other one is um, I'm working on a introduction to Christian theology um, for Baker, and that's going to be a uh, um, an introductory book that um, introduces theology as um, the contemplation of God. Um, and it's a it's a kind of a, it, it's so many so much theology today, even in evangelical circles, is is uh, you know the reason theology is important is because it helps us be better activists. You know, it, it helps yeah, us right. to be better at uh, working for justice or or even evangelizing the world but it, it it's practical and it, and it's oriented toward you know basically theology tells us how to do it better and i want to suggest that that that's that's not quite right that in the great tradition um the purpose of theology is for the disciple to understand 
and 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 love God more and worship God. So by contemplating God, we, the church is led to worship, and that's where everything else is, is begins. It, it, worship is the is the foundation of everything and that that Christianity is about, and a foundation of our witness. If we don't fix our attention on God and contemplate Him and love Him and worship Him, then nothing else we do will matter, and everything we do will go off off the rails in some way. So I want to sort of reconceive traditional loci of theology from revelation to eschatology. Uh, I want to try and present it um, in a very God-centered way so that the doctrine of God informs every single individual loci uh, locus of theology as we go through the, the as we go down the list. So that, that's what that's about. It's designed for introduction courses in theology. Well, I'm looking forward to that, and I'm so thankful that you're doing this work. I think your uh, Interpreting Scripture book is, is already really influencing a lot of people and, and even affirming a lot of things that people have been trying to say, and in a really good way. So I'm just looking forward to more of the work that you're doing. So thanks so much for the work that you're doing, and thanks so much for hopping on and talking to me today. All right. Well, thank you for having me, and uh, it's been very, very enjoyable. 